Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. Didn't you didn't you enjoy the children singing? That was so good. And they have some uh, some other numbers they're going to do, songs they're going to do next week. So we look forward to that. All right. Um, this morning is uh, this is Palm Sunday, and so I'd like to uh, focus on that today. Uh, there are many times that I don't uh, that I don't do special sermons on particular days, but I am going to this morning. And so I'd ask you to turn with me to uh, Mark chapter eleven. Mark eleven. Beginning at verse 1, I'd like to read down through verse 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives... Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away. And found a colt tied at, at a door outside this, in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when they, when he had looked around at everything, As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this Palm Sunday. uh, When we begin to think of this Passion Week, this week that you have, uh, you went through uh, leading up to the crucifixion. Our minds are almost too meager to think of all that took place during that week. But Lord, we are thankful that you were obedient to the Father and and endured all that was set before you for our sakes and for the glory of your name. We pray that you would bless this time this morning. And use it to honor you and glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. 
On January 10th of the year 49 B.C., history records that Julius Caesar crossed the river Rubicon into Italy to begin a civil war. It was there that he cited his famous words, The die is cast. It means there's no return. There's no going back. And so the word Rubicon has become, has come to mean that which is irrevocable or that which is uh, committed. And this was true of Jesus as he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He had committed himself long before and there was no turning back. This last phrase of Jesus' earthly, last phase of Jesus' earthly journey begins with the entrance of the king into Jerusalem. Now most of us don't have a proper sense of what it would be like to live under the rule of a king in our society. We've lived our entire lives under the rule of law and representative government. But up until about 300 years ago, most of the nations of the world were ruled by kings. Even Rome, though it had a senate, was mostly ruled by the Caesars. And the Caesars ruled like kings. This passage opens up with what we would commonly call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is one of the very few events that are, that are recorded in all four Gospels. And that places great importance upon it. Now, as we embark on the scene, we are about to enter Jesus' life, this last week of Jesus' earthly life. He was more conscious of the plots that were against him from the religious leaders. These events began on Sunday. This is Sunday as he's going into Jerusalem, uh, which we've commonly come to know as Palm Sunday because of the events that took place that day. And then, of course, this week is known as the Passion Week. To understand the real impact of Jesus' Uh, entry into Jerusalem, uh, we need to understand it in light of the historical significance of it. Mark's gospel was written to the Romans. It was written to those who were of Greek lineage. And so the, the readers would have been very familiar with what was taking place here from a Roman standpoint. This would have sort of equaled the Roman triumph parade as Roman generals would be off fighting wars and conquering nations and conquering people and bringing home uh, slaves from their conquered enemies. The generals would ride into Rome to stand before uh, before the Caesar and the, before the Senate and the general would ride in on a gold chariot 
And beside him would be the leader of those uh, who they had captured and conquered. He would be surrounded by his officers. And in the parade, he would display his treasures. He would display the slaves that he had brought back from his conquest in chains as they marched through the city. There are so many events that took place during that time. Many of the slaves uh, would have daggers strapped under their chin so that they would have to hold up their heads. They could not hang their heads in shame. It made them hold up their heads and they would they would be wrapped with chains and many times uh, dead bodies of those that had been killed in that conquest would be strapped to them. You would have the priest, the pagan priest would be marching as well uh, with their vials of incense. And you would smell the incense and, and you would also smell the, the death of the dead that was strapped to them. Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Where he writes, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Do you see the Roman Roman inference there? Paul Paul knew what this parade entailed. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Remember the incense? Remember the smell of death? This is what he says. To one, we are a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Our Lord's ride into Jerusalem was much different than the picture of a conquering king or general who would ride into Rome. He rode in not as a conquering king on a golden chariot or a a white horse. He rode into Jerusalem as a lowly servant king. There would be victory and there would be conquering But it was not like the Jews expected it to be of their Messiah. Now we should view this section in light then of the atonement of Christ. Because that is exactly what we are seeing here. Jesus, the servant king, would give his own life for his people. So the entry into Jerusalem of Jesus is an event unlike any other in the Savior's earthly life. Of course, His birth, His death, His resurrection are equally as significant. Normally, Jesus would avoid publicity. Before this time, He was constantly telling people not to publicize His works, not to tell the things that He had done. Or to reveal who he was. He was in constant withdrawal from the people. Let's set the background for this first, for this Palm Sunday. 
Jesus had spent the the last nine months on a journey that would end up in Jerusalem. He purposely went through Galilee, Samaria, Perea, and into Judea on his way to Jerusalem. And during this final journey of his Galilean ministry, he visited some 35 different locations to now come to this final Passover. Jesus had attended the Passover at the beginning of his public ministry, but he missed the two in between, even though Jewish males were required to attend. And so now they approach the city. Verse 1 indicates that they are on the road to Jerusalem that came from Jericho. That road uh, was uh, where he met the blind beggar Bartimaeus and restored his sight. News of his coming, maybe from that very event and from no doubt another, uh, had spread quickly into Jerusalem. And so people are already camping out on the sides of the road for the coming for the Passover. And as they would normally do, they would build themselves a, uh, a lean-to or they would have a tent and they would cut palm branches and use that for a shelter over their heads. And so as they're approaching the city, the news of him coming and traveling uh, is going through the crowd. No doubt telling of the miracles that he had performed. And I would like to draw your sort of a mental picture of what took place on that day. The road to Jerusalem from Jericho dipped into a valley. And on one side, on the, on the west side of the road was Bethphage, the little town of, village of Bethphage. On the other side, almost directly across, was the town of Bethany. And so Jesus traveling the road towards Jerusalem would rise the crest going into Jerusalem. That's why many times it says that they went up to Jerusalem, though they're traveling from the north to the south. It was a geographical up uh, or topographical up, not uh, just from the north. And so as they walk on the road, they would begin to climb the hill, and they would come to the Mount of Olives, and as they crested the hill, they would begin to see the city of Jerusalem come into view. Very slowly, as they walked, they would see the city rise into view. The first thing they would see would be the temple in the distance, for it sat on the hill uh, there in Jerusalem. They would see the many thousands, multiplied thousands of people walking that road and putting up their tents. The city would be bulging with people for the Passover. Others are seen now coming into the city towards Bethany with palm branches in their hands. Why these strange happenings? Because Jesus was coming. His fame had preceded him. 
It is a highly charged moment, highly charged anticipation of his arrival into Jerusalem. They wanted to see him, not only because possibly they'd heard word of his giving the blind man his sight, but for the man who was traveling with him, Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They wanted to see Lazarus. For all knew that he had died, that he had been in the tomb for four days until Jesus came and resurrected him. In fact, John chapter 12, verse 17 and 18 says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Kind of a hard thing to keep secret when you raise somebody from the dead. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the first town that Jesus would have come to would have been the town of Bethany, where Martha, or Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived. Then across from that town, on the other side of the road, was the town of Bethphage. Bethphage was a small little hamlet just south of Jerusalem, more like a suburb of Jerusalem than a town of its own right. Nothing more is known of Bethphage than what is said in the text that it was opposite of Bethany going into Jerusalem. It was possibly the place where the colt was tied. Bethphage means house of figs. And if you'll recall, Jesus coming into Jerusalem saw a fig tree fully leafed and went to get some fruit off of it and it had no fruit and he cursed it. It certainly could have happened at Bethphage. It's likely that <coughs> then he comes, then he comes to Bethany which means the house of the poor. And so our Lord directs two of his disciples to go into the village and just north of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem road, adjacent to Bethany. And there they would find a colt tied. This colt would be of necessity uh, the colt of a donkey. And this would have been in keeping with what the prophet had made statement made by Jacob in Judah in Genesis chapter 49, Judges chapter 10, chapter 12, where donkeys were used for traveling and riding. More than this, I think it was probably in harmony with what Matthew said in chapter 21, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That would be the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so, Zechariah 9.9, this is the fulfillment of it. It was a colt on which no one had ever sat. It was unbroken. One writer comments, The fold was unbroken, had never been ridden, as befitted an animal consecrated to a sacred purpose. Our Lord was born of one who did not know man. 
He was buried where no one had ever yet been laid. His choice of an animal not ridden by anyone before him is another of those claims to uniqueness which contrast with his usual condescension to the circumstances of ordinary human life. No one had ever ridden this on this colt. It was unbroken. Now you and I both know what happens when you sat on a on a pony or a horse or a a donkey that has never been ridden. They don't like it. They want to get you off of it. But this unbroken colt was prepared for our Lord to show his, his nature and his identification with humanity. It has been suggested that the preparations for these events had been prearranged by the Lord when he was in Jerusalem the last time. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. The owner of this colt may have been numbered in the crowd of uh, those who accompanied him on the road to Jericho. But whether or not those things are true is of little importance. I prefer to think that it was not prearranged in a human standpoint, that they did not know that Jesus, that Jesus would be asking for this cult or sitting upon it. I believe it demonstrates several things. First, I believe it demonstrates His deity as God in the flesh, the one who controls all things. Jesus knew all things. We need to understand that. He was God in the flesh. He knew everything. In speaking of the details of the event before it happened, he is asserting his deity. He is saying to his disciples, this is what you'll find, this is what you'll do, and this is what will happen. The example of that is repeated in Scripture many times. I'll give you one example. From Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus sent Peter to the Sea of Galilee to fish for a fish that had a gold coin in its mouth. Could that be humanly prearranged? I think not. That fish was there by the decree of God beforehand to show His deity. He divinely prearranged all of this. He omnisciently knew that it would be there. And so Jesus was speaking as God when he told them to go into the village and bring this colt. That is a comfort to know. Because it tells me that Jesus knows everything about the day that we live into. And he knows all of the circumstances of it. Nothing passes him by. Colossians 1.17 says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. God himself through his son is the cohesion of the universe. He is the unifying band which encompasses everything and holds it together. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this morning when the sun rose, 
It was Jesus telling it to rise. When it snows, it's Jesus telling it to snow. Although I would like to see it stop. Second, it shows his ownership, his lordship, his authority, his sovereign authority over all of the universe. They were instructed to untie the colt and bring it to Christ. Now notice what they were to say. They were to say, the Lord, you tell them the Lord has need of it. Jesus called himself the Lord. And that's because he is the Lord. You say, tell him the Lord needs it. And he'll return it when he's finished. I like that too. Because this brings about somewhat of a paradox. But there are many paradoxes in the scripture. Uh, uh, and the sovereignness, the sovereignty of God in the universe. God really doesn't need anything, does he? But in this human sense to fulfill the prophet's decree, he needed to ride that colt. It's the same kind of paradox that we see in his earthly life, that although he was rich, he became poor. He possessed nothing, yet was ruler over everything. He owned the cattle on a thousand hills, and yet had to borrow a boat to go across the sea. He created the stars and galaxies, but he didn't have a place to lay his head at night. He formed the rushing streams, yet he cried out, I thirst. And his chariot was the clouds, and yet he had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. <clears throat> God has chosen to use certain members of his creation... For his eternal purpose. And in his sovereignty he chose that donkey. He could do that because he owned it. He owns everything. And that focuses on an important principle for us. You will find life much easier if you succumb to and commit yourself to the fact That God owns everything that you have. He owns it all. It's not yours. He's only given it to you to watch over as a steward, his steward, for a little while. And then it'll go to another steward or someone else. It's not yours. That means then that everything we have is at his disposal. He can take it. And use it as he pleases. And the the thing that's even more important than that is that we can trust him with it. We can trust him with it. In much the same way, God has chosen you and me as he has purchased us. We are his possessions, and we are at his disposal, and he can use us as he sees fit. Now, if God can use a donkey, and he certainly can and did, then he can use us as well, because we many times are very much like donkeys. 
stubborn, unassuming, beastly-like in many ways. But we are His people. We are His donkeys. We are His sheep. And that is a great privilege to be used by God. Not to mention that the donkey was a was seen as a royal instrument, for many times kings would ride in their uh, travels on donkeys. But it gradually became a symbol of labor and peace, as well as a symbol of the sacred. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing by riding into Jerusalem on this donkey. But he came as a lowly, humble king. So they did just what he said, and they went and brought the donkey to the Lord. And as it happened, just as he said it would, they laid their cloaks upon it, and he rode on the donkey. Verses 7 through 10 of this passage uh, give us the fulfillment of that prophecy. Of course, the prophecy of Scripture had to come to pass. All prophecies have to come to pass or they are false ones. At last, the prophet's dream had come to pass. And by his actions on Palm Sunday, Jesus said in much plainer words, Behold your king. I am the king of Israel. And they recited the Scripture. They knew the Scripture. Scottish preacher James Stewart wrote, The entrance into Jerusalem was an acted parable. It gave the faithful the sign they had been waiting for. It inaugurated the Master's final mission for His people. The people would have known immediately that this was the prophecy of Zechariah being fulfilled. And so... When they had brought the donkey to the Lord, they covered its back with their tunics. He sat up on it and he rode in to Jerusalem. John tells us that when he found a young donkey and he sat on it, as it is written. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus would ride upon a colt that had never been ridden before, and yet the colt didn't buck him off. Didn't try to remove him because he was the Lord. It emphasizes his authority over all of creation. Matthew 21 tells us that they brought the mother of the colt along as well. Isaiah 62 verse 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. When he rode into Jerusalem that day, salvation was riding on the back of that colt. Right before their eyes. And so they performed the ancient practice of laying their tunics down. On the road, this was common when kings would ride into a village in their realm. Uh, The people would line up on the roads. They would throw their tunics down, their outer garment. Throw it down so that the king could ride in over their tunics. It showed their submission to him as their sovereign. 
These people laid their tunics down and they laid their palm branches down, which would be palm branches of quite a great length, 12 to 16 feet. And so it was a sign of salvation. It was a sign of joy and victory. They performed this. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. That's the heavenly scene. Palm branches. And then they began to shout, Hosanna! Which means, save now, we pray. Save now. They were recognizing the king. They wanted him to save them, but not from their sin, but from their oppression by the Romans. Save us now. At this point, as Jesus rises to the crest of that hill looking into the city, he stops. And it is here that Luke picks up the narrative in chapter 19. Turn with me to Luke 19, if you will. I think uh, this is probably where Dave read this morning, some of it. Verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Where have you heard that before? Didn't we hear that uh, when Jesus was born from the angels? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What an interesting statement. God is going to be praised by His creation one way or the other. He can make stones do that, or He can use people to do it. And when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, Jesus knew that as he was riding it in Jerusalem and they were crying, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is the king who comes. Even as they were saying that, he knew that they would reject him ultimately and send him to the cross. He knew it. He says, they are hidden from your eyes. Why? Verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't know the time. 
This moment was, was inscribed in God's predetermined history that if the praises didn't go up to the king, the rocks themselves would cry out. But that isn't the touching thing here. The touching thing here is that the Lord Jesus himself would, with all the compassion of the eternal God, weep over those who would reject him. Looking at people's faces, hearing them say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And knowing that those same faces would cry out, Crucify Him, crucify Him. We will not have this man to reign over us. The word weep is a word, the Greek word, Klyo, it means to weep audibly, to cry out loudly as a child does. Now, occasionally we'll hear one of the little ones start crying in here. They, they'll fall and hit their head or whatever, and they start to cry out. And you know that how loud that can be. This is what Jesus is doing in the presence of these people. He's crying, tears running down his face, crying for them. Because they, he knew they would reject him. You see, he didn't come to destroy them. He came to save them. But the time would come when he will take vengeance on them. Paul tells us that in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. No, he was weeping because of two things. He was weeping because of the sin of Jerusalem... They did not know the time of their visitation. And he was weeping because of the suffering of Jerusalem that he knew would come just a few years ahead. Forty years from this time. He knew that Jerusalem would be encamped by the Romans. That the Roman general Titus would come in. That Titus would kill millions of them. And crucify them on the sides of the road around Jerusalem. And tear down the temple. He knew that. And so he's weeping for that as well. The sin of unbelief always brings suffering. And it finally brings ultimate suffering. Eternal suffering. They missed who he was. They failed to see what he was. That brings about two thoughts. First, they missed his identity as the Messiah. And he indeed was their Messiah, though rejected. As John told us in chapter 1. Dwight Pentecost in his book writes this, Messiah as Prince of Peace came on the appointed day to bring peace to the nation. This then was the day of Christ's official presentation of himself as Messiah to Israel. Christ was identified before the nation as Messiah at his baptism. He was authenticated as Messiah at his temptation. His glory as Messiah was revealed in the transfiguration. But it was at the triumphal entry that Christ made an official presentation of himself as Messiah to the nation. 
Such was the significance of our Lord's statement. If you even knew, if you had only known on this day what would bring peace. But there would be no peace for Israel because they rejected him. One day he will come again to rule and to reign as the rightful king and nothing will hinder that day. And Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on his white horse and he will ascend his throne in Jerusalem and there he will reign as king. Not of just Israel, but as the king of the entire earth. As the king of heaven. Second, it speaks of his humility. His humility as the Lamb of God. A census was taken about ten years after this time. And it revealed the number of sacrificial lambs slaughtered at the Passover there in Jerusalem uh, during the year, this year that Jesus proclaimed himself as king. And it was determined that 256,500 lambs were killed. Slaughtered in the Passover at Jerusalem. One lamb was allowed for as much as ten people. So the worshippers in Jerusalem that week could have numbered very easily 2.7 million people. Think of that. That's almost the size of the Twin cities combined in Jerusalem for the Passover. So there could have easily been that number during the Passover feast where Jesus was the Passover lamb. Were the disciples aware of all this? I mean, did they understand what was going on when they saw all of this and they saw... The crowds and their chanting and what they did. Did they know Zechariah 9, 9? Yes, of course they did. Did they understand Jesus weeping? No, they did not. John twelve sixteen says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were about him, written about him, and they had done these things to him. And so the disciples themselves didn't even understand what was going on. And then we come to verse 11. Verse 11 is kind of a strange verse. It's kind of a a postponed event. Look at it again, if you will. He says in verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. After all of this fanfare, all of the millions of people, after all that took place, he went into the temple and he just stood there and watched. Just looked around. What was he thinking? We're not told. But I can only imagine that he is thinking this nation has no idea 
what is coming to them. They don't know that they are not only in mortal danger, but they are in eternal danger. I think he probably was in the court of the Gentiles watching and observing. He didn't move from that uh, point to attempt anything. And it was evening. And no doubt he was exhausted from the day. But here's the question. When Jesus looks into our church and he looks around, what does he see? What does he think? Does he see an obedient people with a heart of love and devotion to their king? Or does he see people who really don't understand the opportunities that have come to them? These are questions we need to ask ourselves individually and corporately. For we come here every week, we gather together, we sing our songs, we give our gifts, we pray our prayers, we listen to the scripture expounded, and where is our hearts? See, that's what he's looking at. He's looking, he's looking for hearts. He's not looking for outward appearances. He's not looking for Deeds done to be recognized for? He's looking for hearts. Hearts who love Him. Who want to obey Him. Who desire what He has for them. That's called worship. True worship. This is Palm Sunday. Throughout this week we will be thinking and and plotting this next week and thinking of what Jesus did and where he went and how things went in that time. But we need to really be thinking about today, us. Are we going to enter in next Sunday morning with our hearts ready to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords? I hope we do. I desire that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, this Lord's Day, and for the time we've had together. I pray that you would... uh, We've just simply given a narrative this morning of the things that took place on this particular Sunday 2,000 years ago. But I pray, Lord, that you would use this time, this scripture, and all that's been said uh, this morning with the singing, the the prayers, the giving, everything, Lord, that it would be pleasing in your sight because you are worthy of our true heartfelt worship. And so I pray that that would be the case. In Jesus' name, amen.